Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then I want to, uh, I'll start this out looking at this topic. So it's probably going to take all our time to get through this, but I just wanted to take some time to do this today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to gather, to gather on Sundays with other believers and to just be in this place together, to worship together, to learn together. I pray, Father, that you would be our teacher, that you would instruct us in these things before us. It's your word that we look to and desire to communicate. And we just pray that you would now be with us in this time of meeting. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a hand on your handout. Um, you see the topic for today. I'm the repeal of uh, Roe versus Wade, at least the potential repeal of Roe versus Wade. We haven't seen anything official on that yet. But as you recall, a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court, uh, a Supreme Court document was leaked. Um, and in that document, it indicated that Roe versus Wade would be repealed. Um, and that has brought, as you know, all kinds of reaction in our culture. It's brought all kinds of uh, response from different people everywhere. And it's unusual because the Supreme Court is our very private arm of our government. Uh, you don't usually hear of things like this leaking from the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, so that makes it very unusual that that would happen. And we want the Supreme Court to be private. We don't want it to be like the House of Representatives and the Senate. We want a very thoughtful body looking at these things. And so what I want to do today is just how Christians should respond and how we should think about abortion and this whole repeal and all of these kinds of things like this. Um, and so I just wanted to set aside some time before we look at the doctrines of grace next week and um, just take a look at this and, and just talk about this. Um, uh, the several sources are mentioned at the back who I got this, who I got a lot of my information from, but uh, the uh, really good um, ethics book is Feinberg and Feinberg. Um, ethics for a Brave New World. It's a really good book. Uh, I think he covers a lot of these kinds of topics in that 400-page book, but uh, about 100 pages are devoted to this very topic. Uh, let me just look at the history here. Um, many of us were not around in 1973, however I was, and some of you were. I graduated one year before this. I had, actually, I don't even recall this being a big deal back then. I don't know why, just so out of touch with what was going on around me. But uh, it's important to know what was going on around that time period with the sexual revolution. You came out of the 50s and the wholesomeness of the 50s, so to speak, uh, for some people anyway. I'm not saying it was like that for everybody. But then you come into the 60s, it was very turbulent. You had the Vietnam War. You had uh, people throwing off, rebelling against authority. All of these things happening on campuses. Issues of sexuality, openness with sexuality, all of those kinds of things. Uh, all the norms were being attacked and, and uh, all of those things were being kind of undermined and challenged. And uh, so we have a climate that made something like this possible. Even, even in the church, since the beginning of the, uh, the, uh, the 1900s, uh, the church was tilting towards liberalism. I just read a book by Machen and his, his uh, efforts to hold that back. Uh, but questioning the authority of the, of the Bible, uh, the Bible is not 
the Word of God, or if it is, it's just a nice book, and it doesn't mean have any bearing on us or our lives. You're, you're having that kind of climate really, though it had been going on for a time, it was really accelerating in that time period. So this really was the climate in which this whole issue uh, became, was overturned. And you had progressive judges, and let me just say this about the, the courts, and you, under, you know this already, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but you tend to have a constitutionalist or conservative and progressive justices on the courts, and that, 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 that has to do with how they look at documents. There are those who say, let's look at authorial intent, the, the intent of the authors. That would be your more constitutionalist, possibly. And then you have the progressive who believe it's a fluid document and it can be changed, or at least meaning can be changed, and you're not looking so much. Looking, you're letting culture really influence a lot of how the decisions are made. So we had that going on, and we had more liberal, uh, progressive judges on the court at that time as well. And anyway, what they did was they basically uh, made this landmark decision. Uh, Dallas County prosecutor, uh, uh, Wade, I can't, Henry Wade, I think was his name, and then the challenge was by a woman, Jane Rowe, and the whole issue of the right to have an abortion. They overturned it, pretty significant vote, seven to three, I believe, was the vote, seven to two, something like that. It was pretty, I'm not sure, I don't, don't quote me on that, don't quote me on that, I don't know the number. But anyway, they overturned what had been uh, a statute in many states. You see, uh, uh, prior to 1973, abortion was prohibited in 30 states. Basically, that overturned all of those laws, and they had to be, other things had to be rewritten as a result of that. Um, so, this, uh, my next second point there, a landmark decision in 1973 overturned state laws and legalized abortion. This decision was modified in 1992, but essentially stayed the same. Uh, that's not my point to go through all of that. I just wanted to introduce it th that way, just let you know some of those things. Because my, my concern with us this morning is how should we think about abortion? How should we think about this issue? What is our role in society? Um, we, we, like I said, we know how the Supreme Court functions. I mentioned that. But I, I, what I'm concerned about for us this morning is how we interpret Scripture. Just as you could say there are liberal and conservative uh, justices on our court, we have liberals and conservatives in the body of Christ, how they interpret the Bible. There are some of us who would look at the Bible and say, let's look at authorial intent. Let's look at what the authors were speaking to, the culture they were speaking to, what they had in mind uh, historically to what they were speaking to. That's, that's the conservative approach to the Bible, always going back to the book. And then you have more liberal theologians today who basically don't do that. They basically don't look for what the author intended. They look at how it relates now to society, and that's how you come up with liberal views in theology. Uh, modernist, modernism, things like that. Um, so I just want to talk about Christian responses, and here's the reason I want to do that, because prior to 1973, prior to all of this time, everybody was talking like I'm about to talk today. Today, nobody is talking like this. Uh, some in maybe pro-life camps are talking like this, but not, not in, um, not everybody. Most people are not talking this way, and it has to do with the fact that the Bible has been, uh, uh, like I said before, has been discarded. Uh, it's not looked to as authority. And so as the church, we must, we're the pillar of truth. We must uphold the truth. 
And that's what I want to do this morning. Is I just want to be biblical in our understanding of this, not emotional, but be biblical in our understanding of this and think about it, um, how God sees it and what God thinks about it. And so that's what I think we should do. First Christian response is we should teach the biblical view of personhood and life. That's what we should do. Because the Bible does say something about personhood and life. Um, turn, you don't have to turn if you're familiar with this verse, but in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we are told that human beings are unique persons because they are made in the image and likeness of God. You see that point on your handout. That comes from Genesis 1.26, if you want to look it up. That is a historical account. God has spoken creation into existence on the sixth day of creation, of that literal sixth day of creation. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, made him male and female. We are created in his image, and we're to be his stewards of this earth. We are to represent him on this earth. That's what those verses teach. That is unique about, what is unique about the word image, Grudem says this, people were made to be like God and made to represent God. And that's what you mean by image. There are certain attributes of God that are communicable. There are certain attributes of God that we as men and women have, that people have. Animals can never get these. We can think, we can reason, we can feel, we can cry, we can laugh, we can do things like that and have some emotion and, and um, make decisions and things like that. We, we can, we can uh, love and we can hate and, and we can show mercy and kindness and those certain attributes that reflect God. And that is our role, is to image God. We're put in this frame of bones and flesh, and, and the image of God is contained in this body of every human being. So we're talking about abortion. What you want to understand is you're not killing Bambi. You're not letting whales and dolphins get caught in nets. These are human beings made in the image of God, different from any other part of creation. We are image bearers, and so we're talking about human life. And when you destroy a person, you're destroying the image of God. So all this is connected to the, the character of God. Secondly, you see on your handout there, a baby still in the womb is considered a human person. Uh, the Bible never... never um, refers to some other viewpoint. This is, this is a baby in the mother's womb. Um, the secular term, it's a fetus in the womb. It's, it's a baby. Psalm 139 is classic text on this. Listen as I read this. Listen for the personal pronouns. The personal pronouns. For you 
formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Uh, that's just uh, the womb he's talking about there. The womb. When I was made there. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Listen to Psalm 51, 5. And in sin my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean that the act of conceiving was a sin. It means that he was born into sin. It was passed on to him from his parents, but she conceived him, conceived that child. So that's just pronouns used of the embryo, the starting of life. You see that in Psalm 139. Several of the Old Testament prophets are referred to as um, being called in the womb. John the Baptist, uh, Samuel, others called in the womb. We see God doing a work in the womb to allow Hannah and others to become pregnant and to conceive a child. It's a, it's a work of God, of a human person in the womb. It's, it's all through Scripture, is my point on that. It's just all through Scripture makes it clear that, that not just a human, bear, a human a bearer of God's image, but babies in a womb are human life. And to say it any other way is just to go against the Scripture. MacArthur, I found this article, I just printed it out, but he says in Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And uh, he lists several other verses here. Acts 17.24, Paul calls him the God who made the world and all things in it. He says in Acts 17.25, talking about Paul seeing all those idols in Athens, he says, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Just the idea that life comes from God. All life comes from God. And then you look at the genetic and biological evidence. That's just your biblical evidence of life. This is biological and genetic evidence. From the moment of conception, the zygote or the embryo or the one-celled human baby is uniquely human, containing all the genetic information needed to develop into a full-grown human being. Though immature, it is a whole human being. 23 pairs of chromosomes from the mom, 23 pairs of chromosomes from the dad, 46 pairs of chromosomes needed for life, for all of life, all of life. Our technology has allowed us to look into the womb and to, to see things that uh, David describes in Psalm 139. Watch this video. This is Olivia. Though she has yet to greet the outside world, she has already completed an amazing journey. This is the moment that life begins. A new human being has come into existence. 
at fertilization, her gender, ethnicity, hair color, eye color, and countless traits are already determined. She begins to implant in the uterus about one week after fertilization. Her cells organize into what we call an embryo. At three weeks in one day, just 22 days after fertilization, Olivia's heartbeat can be detected. The buds of her arms and legs appear by four weeks. She begins to move between five and six weeks with both spontaneous and reflexive movements. At six weeks from fertilization, her brain activity can be recorded and bone formation begins. She can bring her hands together at seven and a half weeks and separate fingers and toes emerge. She can also begin to hiccup. At the beginning of the ninth week, Olivia will have grown from a single cell into nearly one billion cells, and she is now called the fetus. She will suck her thumb and swallow, grasp an object, touch her face, sigh and stretch. At 11 weeks, she is playing in the womb, moving her body and exploring her environment. Her taste bud cells have matured by week 12, but are still scattered throughout her mouth. Her mother will first sense Olivia's movement between 14 and 18 weeks, an event called quickening. Beginning at 18 weeks, ultrasounds show speaking movements in her voice box. Around 20 weeks, with a lot of help, babies have survived outside the womb. At 27 weeks, her eyes are responding to light. She can recognize her parents' voices and will even recognize lullabies and stories. Olivia has gone on an amazing journey during these last nine months. She will soon signal to her mother that it is time for delivery and greet the outside world. There's a call for abortion start way back, I mean, up to the very last moment, even nowadays. But anyway, you get the point. And why I showed that to you is because David couldn't see this. David could only write about it. We can see it because of technology. We can see what David was writing about formed in the mother's womb. You know, we can see it today. I don't think you would see any kind of sonogram at a Planned Parenthood. I think I don't know if they show them or not, but that would be very confusing. Um, and to go and take that life. I wrote this uh, on there, genetic, under genetic and biological evidence on your handout. The embryo is oriented from within itself toward its own growth and survival, apart from whether the mother flourishes and survives. That's in Feinberg. That comes out of Feinberg's thing. But the, the point is, um, the baby can survive. Even if, even if something happens to the mother, they can take the baby, and the baby would survive. So what I'm just trying to say is that we teach the biblical view of personhood and life. Nobody else is doing that. The church must do that. 
That's not common in our culture anymore. You might hear it in some conservative circles, yes, but I'm just, the church must uphold that. Not because we just think that by common sense, but because the Bible says that. And here's, another, here's something else. It also has value. The human being, on your handout, the human being is valuable because people are made in the image and likeness of God. Once again, quoting from Genesis 1, and 27, we are the stamp image bearers of God. I've already pointed that out from that passage. Uh, you may like your dog, but your dog is not creating the image of God. To kill an animal is not the same. Personal, intentional, unlawful killing is, or murder is forbidden by Scripture and was punishable by death. This is, this is the general law of the Scripture, okay? According to the Levitical law, because murder kills a human being who bears the image and likeness of God. Let me read this to you. It's found in Genesis chapter 9, if you want to turn there. Genesis chapter 9, after the flood has already happened, they've come off the ark, they're redoing everything. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. There were probably vegetarians before. Now he's saying you can eat everything. He's saying that in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 9. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with life that is blood. And verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, hear that? Whoever sheds man's blood, by, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Here's God's rationale for why he has this death penalty, why he has this eye for an eye. The reason is because for in the image of God he made man. You cannot take a human life. It's, not, it's, it's against God's law. To we can talk about capital punishment some other time, but that's not the point. This is the basis of it right here. It's because you are killing, murdering an image bearer of God. That is why it's wrong. <clears throat> so we see the value there. If you, if you take someone's life, it's, you pay for it by taking your life. That's God's logic, not ours. That's just God's logic. Genesis 20, 13, you shall not murder. Leviticus 24, 19, if a man injures his neighbor, whatever's done to him shall be done to him. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the, let the penalty, let the penalty match the crime. Next point on your outline, an unborn baby is considered fully human life and causing the baby's harm or death was punishable by the same laws that govern the, har the harm or death of children or adults. I get this from Exodus 21. In Exodus 21, you may recall the scene there. He says this, if men are struggling with each other and strike a woman who is with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, the child is not injured in any way, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. So there have a, two men get in a fight, a woman standing by, they hit her, the baby comes prematurely, but the baby's not injured in any way. There's a fine. There's a penalty. But the baby is just injured, is not injured in any way. So a fine is paid for. But if there is further injury to the child or to the mom, 23, 22, then verse 23 of Exodus 21. Then you shall appoint as penalty life for life. If that baby dies, if that mother dies, life for life. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. All this is part of the Levitical law code. All based on 
Genesis 9, 6. As, and these are, the Bible knows no such thing as these next views that I have there on your handout. The Bible never frames the reality of a baby in the womb as, mother, as women's health care. The Bible doesn't use that term at all. The Bible doesn't say, my body, my choice, as if the mother possesses ultimate authority as to the fate of the child. Rather, Scripture consistently presents an unborn baby as a human life who bears God's image and thus deserves the same honor, respect, and protection as a human being outside the womb. We say it's against the law to murder, to stop murdering babies. It's against the law to murder those who are in the image of God, who are made in the image of God. Stop murdering babies who are made in the image of God. That's, the, that's how the biblical text flows. And I just mentioned that Christians who use birth control must be mindful of the processes involved to ensure they're not they're, they're using true contraceptive, something that inhibits conception and not something that is ending life. If the church doesn't teach this, nobody else will. That's my point in these first few things. What's our response? We teach. We teach what's right. We teach what's true regarding these things. And secondly, and this is important, and this is, this is very important, from Romans chapter 1. You might want to turn there. Romans chapter 1. This is the second response we have. We expose the heart issue. We expose the heart issue of abortion. We expose what's behind it. What's behind this? And call people to repentance. He starts in Romans 1, talking about the plight of humanity. We are all under the wrath of God. That's the danger that we're all in. So Paul is going to begin, see, Paul is beginning an argument for the gospel. Before he gets to the good news, he tells the bad news. That's the layout of the book of Romans. He lays out the bad news. This is man's condition. This is man's problem. This is man's plight. This is man's sentence. He's under the wrath of God. Unless God does something and God did do something in Christ, that's where he moves into the gospel. Man is hopeless without God doing something. So in Romans chapter 1, he's beginning the book of Romans where he's going to present the gospel as he goes through this book. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Think of that word suppress, holding something back, denying something that's there. Because that which is known about God is evident with them. They can look out their window and they can see creation. They can see God, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood though through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. God has revealed himself in his creation. He doesn't tell you how to get saved in his creation, but he tells you he exists in his creation. What does man do with that information? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They rejected God. The God that was clearly evident to them, they have rejected. 
They have denied him. They have turned away from him. And this is human depravity. This is human depravity, denying God who made us. We don't want to honor him. We don't want to follow him. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And it became futile in their speculations. Verse 21 says, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the uncomfortable God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds. And God gave them over to their lust. Here's, here's the sin. The sin is autonomy. It's the sin of autonomy. It's, it's, it's the sin of idolatrous autonomy. I don't want God. I don't want the restraints that God puts on me. I don't want the parameters or the boundaries of a God. I don't want that. I want to, I want to do what I want to do. I want to be my own God. I want to control my own destiny. My body. It's my body. It's my rights. This is, this is where we at, are at as a culture, folks. This is behind every sin, if you think about it. I want to be who I want to be. I want to live how I want to live. I don't want your book that tells me this. Don't preach that to me. I don't want a God who, hold, who, who restrains me from being who I want to be. It's, it's Burger King theology, one person says. Have you ever heard the jingle for Burger King commercial? I looked this up. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us, have it your way. I just love that. But that's Burger King theology. That's our theology of the day. Have it your way. I want it my way. That is, that is the sin. That is the sin of transgender. That is the sin of homosexuality. That is the sin of abortion. That is every single sin you see. The job of us in the church is, yes, we can point out all the laws, we can point out all these other things, but really, folks, unless we understand what the root problem is, we're going to get the message wrong. We're going to think political action is going to do it. And I'm all for political action, and be involved in that if, if you're called to that, because that's certainly anything that will restrain it, let's do it. If you're thinking laws will change it, then promote those laws, that's fine, do that. But understand something. When you understand the problem, it affects how you attack the problem. And the only thing that addresses and confronts personal, idolatrous autonomy is the gospel. I've got to preach the gospel. I've got to preach the gospel. Laws will not stop abortion. Laws will not stop abortion. It may restrain them, and it may, you know, I hope this thing gets repealed. I really do. I think that's, that's great for our country, for the flourishing of our country in society, but that won't stop abortion. That's not going to stop, trans, you know, laws against trans, transgender, and those things won't, no, the laws don't stop anybody. The Great Commission is not go into all the world and make laws. The, world, the Great Commission is go into the world and preach the gospel. And when you understand this, what he's saying here in Romans chapter 1, that they have denied the truth, and they want autonomy, they want to be separate from God and deny Him. And you look at what happened this past week in parts of our country and going on in our country right now, I would tell you, it, when we abandon God, God is right. Our depravity rules the day. Depravity rules the day. The further we move from God, the more depraved our society becomes. And the problem is not, we know that, gun laws and all those things, 
whatever. But that's not it. It's the gospel. The church can't lose sight of that. Get involved in anything that you think will help restrain the thing, but understand unless the gospel is preached, unless the gospel is believed and embraced, man, you're not going to change anybody's heart. It's not about morality. A lot of moral people are in hell today. You see how it goes. It just this is this is a judgment. God just gives them over. He gives them up. Hey, you want to have it your way? Then have it your way. He just gives them over. That's what he does here. He says he, he, he says in verse, God gave them over. Verse twenty four, to the impurity, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Verse twenty five says twenty six. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. I mean, the, the bottom of the whole thing is homosexuality. That, that, is, that, that describes and defines our given over society. That is a judgment of God on our culture. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. See that? That's what I'm talking about. I don't want God. I don't give thanks to God. I don't acknowledge God. Don't bring, don't bring God into the discussion. God gave them over to a depraved mind. That is, that, is a, that is a darkened mind. You cannot even carry on a conversation anymore with people to reason these things because of a depraved mind that can't even see. I mean, you and I look at the transgender issue, for example. It's just so obvious that this is craziness. And yet... What are you doing when you attack it? You're attacking someone's identity. They let their sin become who they are rather than something that they do. And when that happens, you just can't even reason with somebody like that. Now you're attacking me. You're not. It's not the, that's, they can't, they don't separate that. That becomes who I am. It's, and I, we, got, we have to trust the power of the gospel. I don't think we're going to win any debates on these things because nobody wants to actually talk about statistics and facts. Ben was telling me about a discussion. Um, as you all know, Ben has spent a lot more time reading this. He should be up here talking about this, not me, but he, he spent a lot of time studying this and goes out to Planned Parenthood and all these things they do out there. But, but he was talking about a debate he heard where the issue of rape and incest, which, by the way, is less than one... I think it's less than half a percent. And the person that was pro-life on the panel said, okay, okay, let's allow those. Will you do away with the other 99.5%? They said no. <laughs> you follow me? See the logic? You don't make laws on, you don't make laws based on hard cases. You don't make laws based on those extreme cases. So abortion is everything, it's a worship disorder. I put that in there. It's a worship disorder. Abortion and everything about it is a worship disorder. Underneath my body, my choice is hatred of God that despises his authority and lust after personal autonomy. We've got to remember it's a, it's a worship issue and that affects how we want to fix it. We need worshipers. We want worshipers and that comes through the gospel. There's something very American about personal autonomy, isn't it? 
There is something very American about that. But personal autonomy disconnects, it disconnects from a love for God and a love for others, doesn't it? When I love me more than I love anything in the universe, I don't love God and I don't love others. I'm too focused on me. You, you unha- uh, uh, we, we're seeing this unhitching the wagon from a fear of God. So, depravity of a society can be measured in part by the degree which it expresses, normalizes, celebrates, and defines itself by irrational, wicked, even bizarre examples of rebellious autonomy. Boy, that's true. All right. If if abortion is a worship disorder, then the solution must transcend. See that? Transcend. The solution must transcend better education, laws, moralizing society, or political involvement. Those things are not wrong. Don't get me wrong. They're not wrong. They're just that the solution transcends that, the true solution. Only repentant faith in Jesus and his gospel will solve the heart problem of humanity. So, what happens is it goes, if you follow that extreme of Romans chapter 1 down to verse 32, it's that people start celebrating it. I'm having my abortion party. I'm having my, I'm marrying marrying my, two guys get married or two girls get married. We're having our celebration. Come celebrate this with us. That whole thing is the, just the sign of Romans 1. The depravity of being given over, where depravity goes. It does not shock me that a young man shot up a school. It doesn't shock me anymore. It's happening every week. It's horrible. I, I mean, I wept over it. Man, I cried in front of the TV tonight. But the point is, but the point is, when you've taken all the morals away, what do you expect? Who are you to even say that's wrong? That may have been right to him. You've taught him that. You've been teaching that in postmodern education for a long time. That truth is in you. You have a truth, I have a truth. There's no absolute truth. We took that away from him a long time ago. It's being taken away from children all the time in our culture. Okay, our final response in five minutes. These are some things we can do. Pray, of course, pray. Only God can open hearts and eyes. I can't, I can stand there in front of somebody and say, oh, you're all into personal autonomy. That's not going to do anything. I just pray God will open eyes, open blind eyes. We need to pray to see only Jesus can bring somebody to repentance. Only God can bring somebody to repentance, and that's what we need to be praying. Pray for his mercy to open their eyes. Another one, exposure, what I just did today, exposure. We expose, that's what Ephesians 5.11 says. Listen to this, Ephesians 5.11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what the church does. We expose that. We say, hey, this is you living for you. This is you denying God. This is you pushing God out of the picture. What are a lot of these politicians trying to do right now? Get God back in the scene, right? I don't know how they propose doing that, but the point is, that's, that's, they, at least they recognize that. 
government. I just put government down because we do want... You know, I don't know what you think of Donald Trump. I mean, people like him, hate him, whatever. It doesn't matter. But you know, I'm glad he appointed Supreme Court justices that he did. I am. I'm glad. I'm glad he did. I just pray for more people like that in government, administrations like that. I mean, vote... Personally, I'm a one-issue voter. Where they stand on abortion, that's about it. That issue. There's a couple others in there, but that's a really major issue. But the point is, we want government to we want government to say it's murder. We want government to recognize that we have laws against murder, against people, and you are allowing people to be murdered. Thirdly, defense and rescue. James one twenty seven. The Visit the orphans and widows, those who are the weakest among us. And that's what we do with the pregnancy center. Ben does that with Speak for the Unborn. Children and family, and this is how do we do family. Are kids a liability? How do we, do, how do we view kids? Are they a blessing? They're a gift from God. They're a gift from God. And we, we want that to be in the message of our church, that we put a value on children. They're starting to outnumber us, but that's okay. They're starting to outnumber us, but that's okay. The gospel, we want to see unbelievers to see their, their need for Christ and trust Him. We want to preach the gospel. This is our priority. And we don't want to forget there are believers who have had abortions. And that's a lifelong guilt for a lot of people. That is a lifelong feeling of guilt, struggling with that. I'm sure if, if you've had an abortion and you watch this today, your heart's probably just sad. If you're sad anyway, we're all sad from watching that. But you're sad. You're really sad. And I just want you to know that there's forgiveness. There's grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness. He took your guilt away. You took your guilt away. And I believe that baby's in the hands of God right now. He can do more for that baby than you ever could have. And we just have to have this balance of law and grace. We want to uphold the law. We want to show grace. We want to show grace to people that struggle with this issue. It's a scary thing for a woman to be young and have children and child and her whole family, Doug, Ben's told me stories of the whole family's against her having the baby. She's under pressure to go have that abortion. What's she going to do? She can't go to college now. She can't, she doesn't have any money. She hasn't had any family support. She got a, the father wants nothing to do with it. I mean, I, good grief. It's terrible. We just got to figure out ways to minister in those situations. We just can't deny that. 30 seconds for questions. Sorry about that. I knew it would take me the whole time. Don't look so sad. <laughs> it's just a heavy topic, I understand. We have much to rejoice in. We have a powerful gospel to preach. And I have overcome the world, Jesus said. And uh, that's where we take our hope. All right, guys. Thank you all so much. Father, thank you for this time this morning. God, we are, our hearts are heavy on this subject. We're thinking about all the babies that have died since 1973. Um, 
in the safest place that you designed for them to develop in. We thank you, God, that you've given us a message. You've given us clarity in your word. And may we speak it and teach it clearly. Father, we are just asking you to give us that boldness. We know this is not popular with our culture, but it doesn't matter. We fear you more than we fear them. We fear you because we, and therefore we fear what you will do to them. And we desire God to reach them. We desire, Father, to reach them and to preach the truth to them. Help us to uphold that. Help us to be a pillar of truth. We love you and thank you for this time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.